Hey folks, and tonight's episode is brought to you by YesPleaseVintage.com. If you're in the States and a fan of vintage and upcycled housewares and clothing, give YesPleaseVintage.com a check for clothing, jewelry, homeware, and some really awesome finds. So go check them out now at YesPleaseVintage.com. And currently, if you spend over $60, you get free shipping on all orders. Welcome to episode 84 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host, always Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co-host, the Professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello, everybody. And more excitingly, tonight we are joined by a very special guest. We are joined by Rashmi, who, if you have... <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you then. Uh, hello, Rashmi. Uh, if you obviously are a fan of our Facebook page, you have probably seen Rashmi giving her many insightful comments on uh, our episodes and various bits we posted over there, and... We've uh, decided to get her on as part of our Make a Wish Come True for our fans episode. <laughs> bring, you know, bring bring your fan to work day, isn't it? You know, providing yeah. said wishes to come on an Asian cinema podcast, we can certainly make it happen. So, <laughs> welcome Rashmi to the uh, the show, and uh, obviously, for more importantly, you uh, picked tonight's film, which we're going to be looking at, which is Pale Flower. For letting me join and uh, crash your party, it's been great. That's great. Um, so before we obviously get into all our usual good stuff here on the show, um, tell us a bit about yourself, uh, Rashmi. I mean, when it came to like Asian cinema, was it like a definitive start point for yourself, or was it something you sort of stumbled into through certain titles coming across? Yeah, I would say it built up over time. Uh, my parents were always interested in art house and international films, so I was kind of introduced to that concept through them. And then in high school, I started studying Japanese, had a chance to go to Japan. Uh, that increased my uh, interest and uh, started, I think, Tampopo was maybe the first Japanese film I, I watched and obviously loved it. Um, and then over time, I worked in Japan, lived in Japan, wrote a thesis about Japan, got really into Japan <laughs> at one point. Um, and so that's increased it. And, and nowadays, I would say it's just a great way for me to keep in touch with the with the culture, the country, the language. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's great now that we have so many streaming services and uh, even some online film festivals that specialize in Asian and Japanese film. And it's been great. Fantastic. And is there any sort of particular, is there a Japanese film that you sort of lean towards or do you just sort of like treat it always like the cinematic buffet and just sort of like pick and choose uh, bits that you like? Well, tonight's film is especially close to my heart because I also love noir films and uh, Pale Flower is very much a Japanese noir. Um, but yeah, I do. I love I love a lot of the classics. I also like, you know, modern folks such as Koreeda and Nikkei. And so pretty much whatever I can get a hold of, I'll probably watch it. <laughs> Fantastic. And you obviously mentioned a few of your favorite directors there. Is there any sort of like people that you sort of lean towards seeing there? Their, their films, um, any particular sort of actors or direct, or is it just more sort of like directors that you lean towards? Yeah, I would say directors is probably yeah a good way to look at it. Uh, you know, obviously we're limited when you don't live in Japan in how much content you can get or, or anywhere in Asia, quite frankly. So it's kind of whatever comes across, and of course, more typically we're going to get a lot of the classics, of course, the Ozu's, the Kurosawa's, and so on, um, and then a lot of the modern folks such as Mike and 
Koreda and uh, Takeshi Kitano and, you know, so all of those folks, uh, very, very interesting to see their work. Okay. And if you were to obviously introduce someone to, to Asian cinema, say you've got someone coming around who's never seen like Japanese cinema or Asian cinema, is there like a particular film that's like your go-to for like introducing people to the world of Asian cinema at all? Well, it's definitely a cliche because everyone brings it up, but you know, I think Chunking Express is fantastic, right? You get that sense of that modern Asian city, uh, the culture, uh, the, the visuals. It's a great film. People love the music. Um, so that I, that was another one that was kind of in my starter pack. I think it might be the first uh, Criterion Edition disc that I owned, I think, was that one. Um, so that's a good place to start. It's very approachable. Oh, nice. So um, with time travel abilities, you'll have heard our Fallen Angels episode before this one comes out. So uh, hopefully you'll get a kick out of that. I'm sure I will enjoy it. Mm. Definitely. No, Chunking Express is... Um obviously puts you in good company because obviously Quentin Tarantino is a huge fan of that one and launched his Rolling Thunder pictures with uh, the U- the US print of uh, Chunking Express which obviously features intros and outros which are both fantastic and you can find them on YouTube as well but uh, yeah. when, it, when it comes to Criterion we're a little deprived over here so we miss out on a lot of the Criterion ones I think the only Criterion I own is Spine 1000 which is the Godzilla collection which doesn't fit on the shelf um. <laughs> yes, that's right. And by the way, none of their special editions are standard size. They're all weird sizes. So that's kind of the way your shelf looks. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, on the new channel here in the U.S., I'm really hoping you all will get access to that someday. But it is fantastic. I mean, all of those Japanese library titles are there. And then occasionally you get some new ones, too. Uh, Hamaguchi's films have been there recently. And, um, it's a fantastic channel, so really hope that you all will be able to get access to it. Someday. Yeah, and unfortunately, we have the sort of licensing concerns. So a lot of the films that Criterion put out, especially, let's say, in terms of Asian and particularly Japanese cinema, get put out through Eureka or Masters of Cinema or even Arrow, um, which means there's all kind of, and even for streaming, then there's that, that competitive nature. Oh, we can show this and you can't show that. Um, I mean, really, the number of Criterion's, it's gone up a lot recently, hasn't it, Elwood? I, I, I've seen them appear in, in shops a lot yeah. more, but it's been very much the exception. However, the good news is most of the films are available in a good format just from other other suppliers. So I don't, I, I, I don't know if we will. Obviously, we can we can fudge our way into the Criterion streaming service by the use of a VPN, but I would never suggest breaking the law like that. It's a legal grey area, according to the internet, because if you're talking... Um, Every time, I, every time I fire <laughs> up the VPN, I just expect like the SWAT guys to be kicking in the door. It's, it's, like... it's literally not a legal grey area. It's just that I don't think that the law has caught up with uh, how to how to get people. But it's, uh. abs- it's absolutely not in the terms and conditions of what you signed up to with with the various service providers. But never mind, we don't care because we're outlaws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. Get a hold of the discs. They're also fantastic, right? All the special features yeah. are wonderful. Yeah. Tell me about it. They take over your house, your life. Well, I saw somebody <laughs> who, like, built their own Criterion cupboard. Mm. Um, there and, is... <laughs> and, yeah, I often, like, thought about, like, doing something based around the Criterion collection because it's such a vast range of films that they have. It's not just the art house. They have a lot of weird sort of like action movies a lot of coen brothers movies in there like the rock and armageddon are both criteria oh, armageddon's releases. on there yeah 
Well, but that's how they. I think that's part of how they fund the more obscure stuff, isn't it? Because if you've got yeah. that, if you've got the rights to Armageddon, then that's going to get into every DVD and Blu-ray player in the states, isn't it? Which well, can then lots of other things. They're uh, bringing out the heroic trio as well, which is another I saw that, yeah, and a left field choice. Yeah, but they are. I just remember, you know, when I first got into Asian cinema, and it's getting on to be longer ago than I want to admit. Yeah. Criterion were, at, you know, obviously over here we had, again, we've talked about it many, many times, the sort of the Tartan Extreme and, and a couple of other labels. But for mainstreamy or art house stuff, it, I, I'd be looking over at importing stuff from Criterion stuff from the States, which I've done in the past. So, yeah, it's an important label to me. Yeah. They also have the best cover for Videodrome. Yes. The Arrow yeah. ones, I'm not a fan yeah. of, but I love the Criterion one. Um, and I still hold out hope that one day someone would do me a nice coffee table book of fake Criterion covers. That's like <laughs> my favourite Google search is just spend hours just going through Google images uh, for fake Criterion covers. Oh, what ones that people have put together, yes. yeah. Cause yeah, because some of them are like, so good. I mean, um, there's a whole subgenre of websites that do these fantastic covers for films, isn't there? They're like the, but yeah, I'd 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 be there as well. I love a coffee table book. Saying that though, Pale Flower is a Criterion release over here in the UK, which is just weird. Okay. <laughs> it's just um, why this film, I don't know because there isn't a lot of other uh, most other stuff which is on Criterion in the States, like I say, comes out through your equal Masters of Cinema. So why this one's Criterion, I don't know. But write I, it and tell me. I don't know. I mean, I think it was an independent production initially. So maybe that made mm. the rights more available. I don't know. It's just, it's just they just don't have a huge presence. The, 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 a lot of sort of cult English language films do come across on the um, Criterion collection. Obviously, the Godzilla box set that, that, well, it's not box set, is it? It's Godzilla art book with discs. Um, it has, has come up. It's fairly, fairly rare. Um, I, I, it's, it's just just odd. Anyway, it's nice. More power to them, more of them, because what I, nothing I like more than every DVD and Blu-ray I've got being in a different shape box with a different type of spine. Really appeals to my so, OCD nature. <laughs> I would love it. I would love the criteria to child to come over because it means I've got something to pair with. Obviously, the Arrow Player, which is still mm. my favourite streaming service of all time. Um, certainly, they've they just keep adding more and more bits and pieces that I really want to see and not have to buy the big boutique le- um, releases for them. All I would say it's funny. Funny you should say that because I was mm. um I was watching an Arrow. I'll talk about it a bit later. And I looked at their catalogue and I realised other than um old boy and sympathy for the vengeances every film they've got it's asian is japanese i i hadn't realized they they don't do well no anything else korean they did sure um the sure scope box set true that that, yeah that is hong kong isn't it that was and that was um and i I think they did zombie for sale which is korean as well it is yeah but most of it 90 of their catalogue is to be Japanese. also because most of the catalogue they bought off Tartan. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, well, someone has actually done a video on YouTube about Tartanasia Extreme, which I caught this week, which is really yes. fantastic. Um, if you go on our Facebook page, you can see the link for that one on there as well. But uh, it's well worth checking out, especially if you've listened to us talk about Tartanasia Extreme so many times on this show um, and not had the first clue what we were talking about. It's a really good insight into what the label was and how important, obviously, it was for reviving the interest in Asian cinema here in the UK. But I think this is a good stepping off point to ask what you've been watching. And Rashmi, as you're our guest tonight, um, what, if anything, has been holding your interest this week? First, so I'll contribute a couple things here. So one is actually a film called The Long Walk. Um, and it's uh, directed by Maddie Doe, I believe. She's a woman and a Laotian uh, director. And it, the film does take place in Laos. So not a country we get to see often in films. Um, and it's kind of... Some of it's very hard to understand. You sit there and you're watching it and you're like, wait, what's happening now? So there's a little bit of that. There's definitely a time travel component. There is a ghost story component. There are some horror pieces to it. Um, and then you also just get to kind of know a little bit more about Laos. But I think it's an interesting film. Um, and, you know, just something that's going to be a little bit different from what you usually see. So uh, worth seeking out if you can find it. Uh, I was able to find it on video on demand here. Uh, streaming. Um, so I think it's starting to find its way around, hopefully. Um, and then another thing uh, that came up recently, uh, we've been really lucky in the U.S. The Japan Society actually does some interesting film festivals. And this past weekend, they've been celebrating the 50th anniversary of the handover of Okinawa from the U.S. to Japan. Um, and that's, I'll be honest, that's not something I've done a tremendous amount of study on. But it was kind of interesting to see these films. There were a couple of documentaries and one uh, narrative uh, film called Paradise View. I think it's pretty hard to track down, uh, but it was just interesting. Paradise View is actually mainly, uh, the language spoken is mainly uh, Okinawan language, so it's actually not in Japanese. Um, and the main, main role is actually played by, uh, if any of you watch... Um, Midnight Diner, uh, that series that's available on Netflix here. I don't know if you have it on Netflix there. But yeah, we got it on Netflix. It's, um... it's Okay. So the guy who plays the master, he's in this film, uh, much younger, <laughs> probably 20 younger, years younger than now. Um, and he's really the only, you know, recognizable name in the cast. But uh, I recommend that not so much that you can run out and find it. But it was just interesting to know that this even existed or that this was a period of history that was very interesting and it is being commemorated. And I do recommend if you are in the U.S., uh, follow the Japan Society. They do interesting film festivals that are both in person and often have a online component as well. Fantastic. Um, Stephen, anything for yourself? Yeah, Rashi making me look unprofessional now because that was well prepared. So, um, yeah, I have got something. Just a couple of things, a couple of asides um, and one bit of self, shameless self-promotion. Um, yeah, not many Laotian films at all. I I've, I reviewed one for Eastern Kicks um, 10 years ago. I've just, I've, just, I've just done a double check as I think, all right, I wonder what's happened called At the Horizon. It wasn't 10 years ago. It was only eight, um, six 2016 that was six years ago wasn't it that, that was really good it's like this sort of asian um sort of revenge thriller sort of thing which is quite a common trope but it was really good and i was just looking we've only reviewed two other Loatian films including the one you just talked about and it ah. got five stars so yeah, interesting film. um yeah so but it, obviously not 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 a huge cinematic hotbed um 
but then that whole peninsula sort of dominated by Thai movies, isn't it? I guess there's a few Cambodian ones around. Anyway, interesting. Um, you said you sort of came to Rashmi came to Asian cinema via Tom Popo. Um, That's probably one of the ones I remember the most. Yeah, have you been watching some Itami Duzo? Like, I've become such a, a Duzo fan over the last few years. Um, mostly because of Eastern Kicks getting me to review things. So Tampopo was one of them. Um, uh, Mimbo is another huge favourite of mine. Um, but I, I've just finally written the review to, to The Funeral, which I talked about a couple of episodes ago. So that's that. well, that will be up on Eastern Kicks by the time this comes out. And at the time of recording, probably tomorrow or Monday. Um, but yeah, another great film. But the director who, you know, sadly his... Uh, story is a tragic one and his uh, cinematic oeuvre as a director is 10 films something like that but i haven't seen a bad one yet the other film the, the film i have watched um i don't know if you remember elwood or even actually i suppose um another director i've been getting into this is all japanese month i think is uh yazuzu masamura um uh, so I've, and we've been really lucky arrow have just been chucking out his films and i talked about black test car a few months ago sort of a, a corporate thriller that i really enjoy but on the um on the blu-ray the arrow blu-ray they've got another film called the black report which is the it's the director's follow-up to this it's got now to do with black test car it's just got the word i think a lot of films have black in the title in these couple of years it was a thing um really competent film noir which is amusing because we're going to look at another japanese film noir um that's really interesting but what makes it interesting again i don't know if you remember i talked about um we uh crikey i can't remember the names of the films i've talked about a couple of films i think one's called the third man um basically any in in, in japan things go to court because you're going to get convicted the the conviction rate in japan is something like 95 98 percent and so if a case goes to court, it's almost predetermined what's going to happen. And that's led to stories of corruption and things like that. But it also means that a lot of things just don't get that far. Um, what's interesting about the Black Report is it's a story of a murder. The film opens with the police doing going full 1960 CSI on a on a on, on a murder. They interview a few people. They come to the conclusion who it is and it goes to court. And there's this there's stuff about hierarchies and society and things like that. But spoilers, this is a film which is 40 years old. I'm going for it. Um, the conviction doesn't stick, which I think is the only Japanese film I've ever seen that, that the conviction doesn't stick. And actually, the policeman has to go away to uh, to northern Japan to, in, in shame somewhat because he didn't manage to make the thing stick. Anyway, it's hidden away on the black test car arrow um, Blu-ray DVD. I guess I think it's only a Blu-ray, actually. I'm sure it's going to be on the arrow player. Um, yeah, it's really it, it's not spectacular, but it's a solid seven out of ten. So I'd, I'd recommend that. And like I say, I'm a huge fan of Yasuzo Masamura. And it's one of those directors I just can't believe I'd never heard of until two years ago. Fantastic. Um, for myself, obviously, rounding out the classy portion of this uh, episode, um, it's been a weird couple of weeks since we recorded last. Um, with the most recent one I watched was uh, Interview with Cannibal from 2012. This is a documentary about Issei Sagawa who is a uh, Japanese cannibal who was studying in France 
when he uh, shot one of his fellow students and uh, engaged in acts of cannibalism for three days before he uh, tried to dispose of a body and got caught. Now, he's, the interesting part of his story is the fact that he was institutionalized. He was declared unfit to stand trial, and uh, they declared him insane. So he was sent institutionalized. And the French public got really ticked off with the fact that they were paying to hold this guy. So he was deported to Fra uh, back to Japan. And there he was declared sane but evil. Um, and was basically let go to be a free man, write books and magazine articles and basically did the whole celebrity freak show talk show circuit. And this uh, documentary, it's only about 30 minutes and it was produced by Vice, um, is a 30 minute interview with him where he talks about his childhood growing up, the case itself and uh, the acts they have. And he is undoubtedly one of the most creepiest people you ever meet. Um, it's interspersed with some of his even creepier artwork somehow, which Vice thankfully have blurred out some of it because I have hate to think what the hell this guy's uh, been drawing. But he's um, got a real disturbing aura to him. But if you feel like giving yourself the heebie-jeebies for 30 minutes or want to look at something a little more dark a little more uh creepy then uh interview with cannibal is on youtube for you to go and check out did i did i hear right he got let off in japan because he was evil yes he's saying there's, there's no there's no law about being evil therefore <laughs> <laughs> only in japan can you be declared sane but evil yeah okay they probably got scared of setting precedents for some other things or something like that how bizarre um there is a I, sorry please carry on uh film about this guy too if you want to hear more about him but uh, <laughs> i think this was one of those things that came and went on the criterion channel at one point but i think this is the one it's called kaniba c-a-n-i-b-a uh if you if you know if you didn't get enough of this guy <laughs> what you want <laughs> another hour and a half and this film is super weird i watched it not only obviously is a guy super disturbing um but it's shot in a really unusual way they do these real extreme close-ups where you only see like half his face and um yeah <laughs> pretty yeah there's um a series coming out as well which uh focuses on a crime investigator in japan i can't remember it's called i think it's tokyo vice that um the, the book's called this <laughs> but um i've heard some good things about the the show from the test screens that have been out so i'm excited to see that one as well i was not a fan but uh i have my you know issues with it but it's you know it's obviously well made michael mann is behind it it's got a big budget really getting marketed here on hbo so you okay. should definitely yeah i'm very diverse when it comes to michael mann i mean everyone raves about heat but i just do not get that movie at all like his earlier stuff so i like thief you know i like some of those earlier ones that he did i got yeah. thief in my watch pile i'm really excited to watch it so it if if you've given it the uh, the Rashmi thumbs up, then we'll have to bump it up the list. Um, the next up had uh, How to Blow Up a Helicopter, Echo's Story, uh, which is a short directed by Michel Gondry. Um, this was coming off the back of him directing his segment for the, I think it was a trilogy of uh, short films called Tokyo, um, in which he worked with Echo. I'm going to really screw this one up now, but it's uh, Fujitani, I believe, who we're assuming you're probably best known for being in the Gamera trilogy. Okay, yep. 
uh, like Revenge Virus and stuff. Uh, she's also known for being the daughter of Steven Seagal. And this uh, short <laughs> film, it starts off just following her around and she's talking about her father and it's really great if you have no idea who her father is and, and she's like, oh, would you like to meet my father? And they arrange to go to this hotel and it's there, Steven Seagal speaking in perfect Japanese and he's nutty as a box of frogs. If you thought the Japanese cannibal guy was nuts, this is another whole bunch of nuts on top of that as he makes his usual wild claims of not only being a cop but also working homicide which is uh, absolute bull because anyone who watched uh, Steven Seagal Lawman would know that he was just some guy who rode along and taught the police, local police um, hand-to-hand combat techniques but um, in that show he was also he got in a huge um, legal foray because he he organized a raid on a suspected cockfighting ring using a military surplus tank uh, in the process, crushing the beloved cockerel of this farmer, um, who then proceeded to try and stu- sue uh, Steven Seagal. So, 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 do you say this is directed by Michel Gondry? Yes, it's uh, it's a little short film he uh, he did where he, he was just interviewing his lead actress and uh, stumbled into this interview with with her and her dad and. Right. She talks about like being on the under siege set and how she was like really upset that she couldn't see the helicopter blow up. I see, and of course, helicopters blowing up is a is 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 it's a whole podcast on its own, isn't it? It is. Go and check out our fr- good friend Mr. Will Slater over on exploding helicopters. Um, oh, you can find him on Twitter at which is at Chopper Fireball. He is on a mission to chart and document every exploding helicopter on film. He's currently, I think, up to 500 plus movies. But I still think that if he was to produce a book, I think How to Blow Up a Helicopter would be the perfect title for that book. Oh, I think so. I just, you just made me think. Like Michel Gondry was such a, you know, he he made one of the greatest films of all time. He also made The Green Hornet. That's not the same thing. <laughs> and all those fantastic. Actually, I don't mind The Green Hornet, but I know a lot of people have issues with it. But he made all those fantastic music videos. But where's he been? <laughs> where's he been since 2017? <laughs> Just... um, he's been around. Um, he was he was like Mark Romanak in the fact that you mm. had that those di- bunch of directors because you had Spike Jones, you had David Fincher, uh, you had Sofia Coppola to an extent. These people who were like making really exciting like uh, escape films and music videos, and then they all transferred into making feature films. And he, like Gondry did some interesting work. I mean, he did Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He did Science yeah. of Sleep. He did that one with um, Audrey. Um, Audrey Tattoo. Emily. Yes, uh, which I've yet to see. Um, he also did like Be Kind Rewind. These like really sort of DIY sort of uh, Wes Anderson-esque style movies that were like full of whimsy and based on like dreams. He was kind of like yeah, C.O. Sono in a way. Practical. Well, no, no. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, whimsy, practical effects, really, really imaginative. And, and like you say, those, those videos, those music videos he did in the sort of late 90s, well, all through the 90s, I guess, really, you know, absolute things like, this, like he did with the White Stripes, didn't he, and, and various other people. Yeah. But he's just... Oh, I guess he's still making the odd music video, but well, his um bad. The, his whole motive of having giant hands appear in his work regularly is a childhood nightmare he had where he <laughs> would imagine his hands getting really big, and his mother used to have to come in and rub his hands to reassure him that they were still the same size. 
<laughs> Bless him. Yeah, anyway. anyway, sorry, I've, I've completely uh, That's right. distracted you. This isn't the uh, French cinema film club. Rashmi, are you a fan of Gondry's work or Steven Seagal? I really like I loved his segment in Tokyo. Uh, and then, yeah, definitely Eternal Sunshine is obviously a very intriguing, interesting film. And uh, I'm not a Jim Carrey fan, but he was good in that. So, <laughs> yeah. I'd like to see more. I would love to. I would love to see more of like another like Eternal Sunshine movie, just to get back to making weird, quirky indie movies. Um, the uh, opening line of that movie, Valentine's Day, a holiday invented by greeting cards companies to make people feel like crap. I was like, as soon as I heard that, I was like, I just love this movie straight away. This is the movie made for me. Yeah, it's one of my it's one of my favorite movies. But I just yeah, I was a huge fan of his music videos actually. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Bjork. So he worked a lot. He worked a lot with Bjork in her. He did post Sugar Cubes days. So I was uh, yep. Very aligned on, with him. He got on well with Bjork, unlike Lars von Trier. Yeah, well, Lars von Trier. Does anyone get along with Lars von Trier? Uh... <laughs> I don't think Lars von Trier does. <laughs> he walks past a mirror, he'll probably have a fight. The, the, the people who get on well with him are the ones who have the most detached relationship with him. Um, people like Udo Kier and, um, oh, what's his name? Willem Dafoe. These people who just like, like to get in, get the job done, and don't worry too much about being friends with the director. Right. Um, exactly. But I don't I've been on a, a Von Trier kick recently, so I'm a fan. He just often says silly things, which, uh, but he fills that void until Cronenberg makes a new movie. Also today, because it's been a day of really exciting releases, because we had the third season of Love, Death and Robots came out. We've had a bunch of really exciting trailers for like The Boys and uh, Umbrella Academy. And we also had Money Heist Career, Joint ec- Economic Area got a trailer as well released today uh i've yet to watch the original money heist but i'm really excited from what i saw of the korean version of money heist including them reworking the dali mass to make them seem more korean i, do... I don't know what i don't know what you're talking about so... okay what is money heist money heist it's like one of the biggest shows on uh netflix that isn't uh squid game is it american though no it's a Italian, I think it is. Oh, I have. I, oh, Spanish, sorry. sorry. Yes, I have heard of this. It's like, where is that the one where they're like locked in in the in the safe for about an, a season? Is it that one? I'm going to say yes. It's the one where they're in the uh, red boiler suits with Dali mass. Yeah, it, 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 yeah. I haven't I haven't seen it, although it has appeared in my you should watch this list, yeah. and it did sound kind of interesting. And I I do really enjoy Spanish TV shows. Actually, there's a time travel one which I really enjoyed, but where yeah, it, 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 I mean I've always loved Spanish language film, but Spanish TV. I mean Netflix again, treading on ground that we tread on quite regularly. But Netflix is doing fantastic things for international for 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 our for 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 the longest time england britain whatever you want to call it we had a very snooty attitude to television especially not maybe not so much film but television especially from other countries other than obviously american stuff which we import daily but netflix and we just see we see things not just asian cinema asian tv shows of which you know there's more than k-dramas but Italian, Spanish, French TV shows 
and and they get almost like a mainstream audience now so bravo to netflix you may have killed many other things off but you are making um the british public much more international and that's a good thing so yes i do know what it is Elwood. i just didn't realize it was called money heist and okay. uh and then if there's a korean version it'll probably be a lot of fun i'm excited um certainly the cast look very interesting and vibrant it's weird when you read the comments and everyone seems to know who the characters are already off a two-minute trailer everyone seems to nail down who exactly who everyone is so that's good for them i guess uh, and in other lowbrow news, uh, Maki Ito returned to AEW for a match, which means we're one step closer to getting the Maki Ito Funko Pop, hopefully. If we mention it enough, it might happen. And then I will be have another space on my shelf, like, filled with the full, on, full Funkos I want. You're on, um, you're on your one-man trip to try and get the show into a wrestling show as well. I'm not. I just like, I just like bombarding <laughs> you with her stuff because it's so out there. Um, mm. As I said, she's the folded idol uh, who's got an indestructible head, as she was described as this week. So, cool. no, you should, you know, just have it on in the background or something, Stephen. Yeah, I've got enough things in my life. <laughs> well, on that uh, note, uh, time to file the projection and get on to tonight's featured presentation, which tonight is The Pale Flower. Well, the name in Japanese, yes, kawaita hana. Uh, so hana means flower. Kawaita means kind of more like dried or even parched. So if you're thirsty in Japan, you say nodoga kawaita. So my throat is basically dry or parched. Um, and I actually think, although parched flower sounds weird in English, and I can understand why they did not use that as the English title, it is probably a better uh, kind of expression of this this character in this movie so um i think it's interesting that the japanese title is a little bit different than the english one no pale flower is released in 1964 um it follows a yakuza member who's recently been released from prison by the name of uh, mirakai played played by rio uh ikabi I'm going to apologize for all the Japanese names I'm going to mispronounce, as always. I'm sure that uh, Rashmi is going to just blow us all away tonight with her perfect pronunciation that she's already right. done already. If she's lived in Japan, yeah, I'm guessing she can do it quite well. So just feel to, feel, we'll, what we do, just you say all the names, right, Rashmi, and we'll just edit in as Elwood says it. Yeah. So, <laughs> I've seen a number of sites now where they, they you have the video and they would just point up and have like the name of the character or someone in because they can't be bothered to screw up their own pronunciation every, every youtube channel that i so sometimes sometimes i do do some pre-work and every time some white person is reviewing a japanese film they'll say sorry if i'm butchering the names i think yeah i've been there mate we're there every time but it's only japanese names which bizarrely are the easiest to say they, yes, you literally you literally read them as they say them there's no it's not like it's not like chinese where there's because it's a tonal language it's really hard for us to get some of the noises out that's it, right it's not tonal and it's also every syllable is always pronounced the same way there are no yeah uh in how yeah so the the main character's name is muraki muraki that's his name 
uh, Ikebe. Ikebe is the actor, Ryo Ikebe. And the director is Masahiro Shinoda. Okay. So when it obviously came to his sort of work as a, a director, I mean, is this sort of one of the directors that you're a fan of? I mean, you're obviously a, a fan of this film because you highlighted it as being one of your favorites when we were talking about what to obviously uh, discuss on the show. So. Yeah, very much so. Uh, so Shinoda, I kind of call him the Scorsese of Japan. It's not the, you know, it's not a hundred percent correct analogy, but the, but the reasons are, um, so he has kind of an academic interest in filmmaking. Uh, he, he's a smart guy. He went to Waseda University, which is one of the kind of top-tier universities in Japan. And um, you, you may notice him. If you ever do get your hands on some of these Criterion discs, you'll see that sometimes he's the one who's actually interviewing a famous director from the past. So like Kobayashi or someone like that. He'll sit down with them and ask some questions, which kind of reminds me of what Scorsese does uh, for, for American film. Um, they both have done uh, films of various varieties. I mean, Shinoda has everything from very, like, uh, uh, kind of strict Japanese ancient theater uh, to crazy spy films with ninjas in them. Um, and he's done everything in between. And so he's got a wide range of films, just like Scorsese does. Um, they actually both did a film of the book Silence. Um, Shinoda is quite a bit older. Scorsese's is more recent, but I think it's kind of interesting. They were both interested in that same story. Um, so Shinoda is kind of one of the members of the Japanese new wave of directors. So the new wave kind of fits in between, you know, we've all heard of the classic folks like uh, Ozu or Kurosawa, and then a lot of people have heard of the modern folks like Nikkei or Koreda or Kitano. Um, and Shinoda fits kind of in the middle there, kind of in the 60s. And it's a very interesting period in Japanese cinema because the studio system was breaking up at that time. So several members of this new wave started in the studio system, quickly soured on it, tried to move to a more kind of independent way of filmmaking. And, and Pillflower actually is Shinoda's first attempt at making an independent film. It was distributed by Shochiku, but uh, he, he was kind of independently financed and made film. And he quite enjoyed that because it gave him a lot more freedom uh, in kind of how he wanted to make this film. Uh, in the end, when Shochiku got the film, they kind of shelved it for a while. As we'll go into some of the themes of the movie, they were concerned about, oh, it's a gambling movie. I don't know. Uh, but then when they finally did, it took about a year for them to get it out there, and it actually did really well. Um, so I think, uh, and I think that that's really uh, lasted to this day. It's a great film and really combines a lot of noir sensibility with 60s cool, and of course, uh, it's in Japan. So... Yeah. And he um he worked for Ozu, didn't he? I think I think his background yeah. was I think like a second unit director or something like that or whatever the phrase would be. So so he he's kind of bridging he he's he's a bridge between the old and and like you say the new wave. And we've we've looked at some of the new wave directors before. Um and he was only 33 when he made this. Very young. Exactly. That's, that's the other thing, you know, in a, in a in a society which doesn't necessarily reward youth right you've got to do your you know this age and seniority and it's you know it's not maybe as confucian a society as some of the other asian societies but yeah for 33 year old to even be able to do this is one thing but to be able to put it to put it together so well is is another thing yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, with the Japanese New Wave, I've, compared obviously to the French New Wave, I find these films both have got that element of cool to the the filmmaking style. But I think with the Japanese New Wave, I mean, certainly when you look at this, um, 
movies like this and you look at things like branded to kill they've just got such a really great aura to them and certainly in the way they're shot and for a film which is largely just about hanging around in gambling dens and about a code of honor in many ways because when we look at uh murakai he's follows his own sort of samurai code he's very loyal to his boss he's accepted that he did his time because it was the right thing to do even though he didn't really truly believe in the crime that he committed where he murdered someone from a from a rival gang and in by going and serving his time in the meantime the families have have basically come to an agreement um and are willing to sort of sweep it under the rug and with him removing really sorry him returning from prison he sort of slips back into his old habits which is mainly hanging around gambling clubs and hooker bars and he lives this real sort of sort of shabby life he lives in a a room essentially there's very little furniture or anything he just sort of like has this little house that he sleeps in but his main focus is just basically serving his boss and just being a good foot soldier um and it's through his inhabiting these sort of gambling dens that he meets this mysterious young woman who sort of becomes kind of an obsession to him um as the pair go on this sort of uh, gambling spree and he sort of actually spends more time with her he finds that she's sort of like drawn to this sort of like dangerous and seedy side and gets a uh, almost a thrill out of it as she bursts into fits of laughter whenever she does something particularly uh that he considers very stressful or um exhilarating to her but um obviously with the our leading man here i mean he was pretty he came in i mean he came in in a pretty defeated state he didn't really see himself as a leading man when he was sort of cast in this movie i think he was doing a play at the something at the same at the time he was uh cast but here he's got some real sort of serious leading man chops to him even if he didn't believe it himself yeah that's right so he he was going uh, exactly as you said Elwood, he was going through a tough part in his career he had stage fright and it made him basically forget his lines and so he's in the first uh kind of uh session of this play that they're putting on and you know obviously live audience and he just forgets his lines and basically has to walk off the stage um and as you can imagine that was not a tremendous boost to his confidence he kind of became a little bit of a laughing stock who's not feeling good about himself uh when shinoda came to him and and shinoda actually that's what he wanted right because if you look at muraki's character in this film this is not someone where everyone's everything's turning up roses for him, right? He's he's also kind of down on his luck. And that's that. That's what somebody he wanted somebody who had some life experience and particularly some negative life experiences. Um and so when he approached Ikebe and said, um, you know, hey, uh, I'd be interested in casting in my film, the actor actually thought it was a joke. So he was like, really? Uh you must be kidding. I mean, you didn't you didn't hear about my theater experience, did you? Um and so she noticed trying to make him feel better and kind of get, you know, build up his confidence. And he's like, well, you know, um, I've seen some of your previous movies and I think you have this very graceful and erotic walk. And, and I want that in my film. And so he's basically like, all I have to do is walk. <laughs> um, and basically that, that's how he got hired. Um, and I think it's a great fit. And I think Shinoda's instincts were exactly correct that this man in this time of his life with this experience is a perfect person to play this role. 
And obviously our leading lady here, um, Seiko. Am I pronouncing that right? Seiko. Seiko. Seems even more fitting when you say it correctly. It's a homonym with obviously English Psycho, right? And <laughs> exactly. That uh, did that consciously. He may have, as I mentioned, he's a very smart guy. Uh, if you talk to him about all the influences in his movie, uh, it's pretty amazing the things he's thought through. So it's possible that that was intentional. Um, and at the same time, he's also got this uh, woman that you're sort of seeing on the side, uh, Shinko, um, who basically he spends a lot of time. She's working at a clock shop, which seems like the most horrific place to work. Just being the few scenes we see her in that, the clock shop, and it's just constant ticking and chimes. It would just drive me nuts. Well, um, but she, she's his fiance, isn't she? And, I was, and, and was she really though? Because he encourages her to go off and marry a guy oh, from yeah. the office. So, so, so our, our, our hero is a complete nihilist, right? Who the his opening dialogue is something along the lines of "People are shit." I killed one and nothing changed. Um, so the fact he's he's in a relationship at all, I find remarkable. But she's been waiting for him while he's in prison. She's staying with her stepfather, who's done terrible things to her, although I don't think it's particularly explained. And she's literally living in a place where the clocks are ticking. It's it's the least subtle metaphor of all time. <laughs> but it's but yeah, I, I think I think they're meant to be in a a proper relationship and you're right a fella from the office turns up and says um come on let's get married and she says this guy asked me to marry him today and now oh, here i goes yeah you might as well no point hanging around with me like <laughs> shit i guess i call it a proper relationship i think she definitely sees settling down with him as an option and of mm. course He's such a nihilist that that's never going to happen, right? And this film is really a love story of two nihilists who found each other, right? Um, you know, spoiler alert, it's not necessarily a happy ending, right? <laughs> well, I mean, every time Psycho's on the screen, she's just so arresting. Yes. Um, I, you can't help but take your take your eyes off it. And there's another... Um, another actress in this film and i can't remember it she appears in one scene where she's there with a cigarette holder um he's at a different gambling he's in one of the lower gambling dungeons she's just there smoking cigarettes and uh with a cigarette holder and i just found her so arresting to watch and i just wish that they had addressed her name wise just so i could know who the actress was so uh, it's psycho you mean it's uh, kagamariko is her name so Mariko is oh no the yeah. the other girl no with the, the girl, the girl with the the girl with the cigarette in the cigarette holder yeah that is psycho is that yeah 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 it's I, I, yeah it's her but she's um because obviously she's she's a, she's one of the most thinly drawn characters her characterization is paper thin in terms of her history and her backstory we work it out don't we and it's I mean they even go so far at the very end to say you'll never guess who she was <laughs> And then we never. And they don't tell us. Yeah, they don't she's clearly, she's clearly um, from either an incredibly rich family or a famous family, maybe even royalty, that, that, which is why they're skirting around it. But yes, because he sees her at certain times outside of of the gambling dens. Do you remember? There's the bit where the is it like at a, at a wedding party or something like that? He sees her as well. I think it's an omiyai. An omiyai is kind of when uh, people are introduced to each That's other. That's right. It's like a speed dating party. <laughs> Just watch the funeral, Stephen. It's very similar, right? An omiyai is a very formal occasion. 
think it's very Ab- similar to apps absolutely lots of rules and the funeral it's wonderful they have to watch a video to find out um how, how to act at a funeral and you think really <laughs> but yes um so yes but that is her that is her i know the scene you mean her because she's just she's a she's like this like i say the, there's no characterization about her but she's absolutely beguiling oh yeah uh, she's i guess she's a femme fatale because let's be honest this isn't this fits all the categories of noir right the high contrast lighting the city yep. at night all those kind of night. things which, yep. which we associate also you know it's it's the blackest of black films that both these people one of them can't one of them's a complete uh, misanthrope who can't stand people and is a yakuza assassin and the other one is somebody who's clearly bored with life and it's just a thrill seeker and after ever more and ever more increasing dangerous things to start with that's going to gambling houses and being the only woman there and badly gambling on um oh, i forget what cards is it hanafuta cards is that what they're called yeah exactly mm-hmm. yeah um with games that i don't i don't understand don't know about you two but i'm <laughs> sure i'm sure they're good games they look like complete acts one of the james bond books i can't remember which game Bond novel it is is fundamentally 90 percent ian fleming describing playing um, james bond playing baccarat oh that's uh casino royale is that right is that it yeah because yeah. casino royale because baccarat is um bond's game of choice yeah but backright isn't very cinematically filmable well it's not even ch- a it's barely a game it's <laughs> literally it's a game it to poker yeah um, no, yeah it's 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 that but i felt i felt some of this film was a bit like that but yes but then she also races her little sports car along the road with strange people oh yeah against japanese popeye yeah <laughs> 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 um she um she ends up again we'll talk about it but she ends up saying oh, i shot up with some heroin last week yeah um, <laughs> oh yeah the doctor gave me a bump didn't he? it's like oh really yeah um which again we might get to but that the, there's so much embedded in the fact that it was heroin to me because i don't know how many yakuza films we've ever watched but there's always despite all the finger chopping and garish suits and machete wielding and beating people up they never want to touch heroin right it's you'll you'll see it in lots of films some drugs are okay but not heroin it's like this just no no film um some Mike films the ones with the uh the mole song films uh, those those yakuza's will not touch her and it's the worst thing that can possibly happen and the fact that she does that and the fact she's got it from this guy who's half chinese because heroin opium are the chinese drugs they're not japanese drugs you know there's there's just all these things that this girl's doing but that's all we know about her that she might be rich and that she's clearly got a death wish oh yeah she's also um, like so engaging like every time you, she's on the screen you can't help but look at her and there's a few actresses that are able to sort of have that arresting sort of gaze to them i mean anime wong is the most obvious example um and then obviously if you look at a little more uh towards the 60s and you look at uh, yukio kobayashi who was in destroyer monsters um when she had that um jackie o look especially you just can't help but look at these uh these beautiful women and that's what threw me because when we see her with the cigarette holder she's in very sort of traditional garb and the rest of the time we see her she's in more sort of western uh dress and the fact that she's hanging around in these sleazy gambling dens and the yakuza 
members they don't actually mind it they actually see it as a plus having this attractive woman being in their gambling den they see it's like oh we're going slightly more up market now we've got an attractive woman here it's not just like heavily tattooed uh or they're being lechy little leers i think there's a bit of that to it as well probably that as well she she who she reminds me of is audrey hepburn yes Mm -hmm. that 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 kind of elfin not manic pixie dream girl but just a pixie girl sort of thing and and i think yeah and i I just think there's maybe it's just because i've just watched charade or something but she was really reminding me of audrey hepburn all the way through it without the cheeky little chit chat but visually and that way the camera just loves her and black and white cinematography just loves her definitely and i i think uh he kind of, Shinoda wanted her to be this mystery because that's why the film works, right? If we knew everything about her, she wouldn't be as alluring. Um, so, and she was kind of asked also to act in a way that you're not giving mm. that much about yourself. But but I don't mind her being a cipher. Sometimes I I complain about a film, yeah? This, this especially, you know, this female character, she's just there for her looks. How often do we say that? Especially in some Asian cinema. Whereas in this case... It's it's the part of the character. She is. Yep. She's meant to be a cipher. We're not meant to know anything about her other than she's the flip side to our lead, although they are both running in the same direction. You know, he, he he's a he's a misanthrope and she's a thrill seeker, but they both are, tr- are struggling to find meaning in life. Yeah, I think it's, you know, we are meant to kind of be struck by her the same way the main characters in the film are, right? So we kind of, we're not given any more information about her than they are. And I think that's intentional because she takes our breath away too. And we can see why does this character do these things for her? We can kind of understand. Surprising for this this film and obviously the way it's shot, we also get a lot of interactions between the two bosses um, of these two Yakuza families. And there's so many charming moments so they're always at the track or they're having dinner parties and at one point he calls him uh calls him okay to him to go and have a conversation with him while he's at the dentist and this guy's teeth are so bad it's like yeah i'm not surprised you're going to the dentist but they are they are austin powers level bad teeth it's not just austin powers he's missing the bottom <laughs> row of them the irony that this this obsession with the dentist as well that this guy has because it even when he's about to send him off to his doom he says well don't one of them goes don't hurry go to the dentist first go for a few sessions even though frankly he's going to kill a man maybe die or at least go to prison the last thing on his mind is probably his teeth he's also attracted to the dentist so obviously of course Uh, very welcome Yes, the two gangsters just crack me up, the two gang bosses, because they just, uh, well, first of all, there's that Tampopo-type joke where one of them's telling the other one, you know, you have to, uh, you can't sip your soup loudly and kind of oh, trade yeah. in the etiquette. And I think, you know, this is once again an overall te- theme that Shinoda talks about in the film, that this is, you know, Japan is at kind of this crossroads now, where obviously they've had a lot of American and Western influence since the war. Uh, they're also kind of obviously with what's going on geopolitically in the 60s. Russia's also kind of, the Soviet Union's kind of courting them as well. So they're kind of, there's this feeling of they're just kind of floating, stuck in between all of these things and kind of lost about their identity. And I found it particularly interesting, all the kind of Western iconography, Western images, Western 
Western food. There, it's Itali- Italian opera, um, uh, Christ- Christ- loads of Christian iconography, right? Which isn't a thing in... Oh, funny enough, you talked about silence, didn't you, earlier on, <laughs> which is literally yeah. about, about about Portuguese um, missionaries. But, yeah, you know, Japan is famously almost irreligious. You know, they, they, they have their shrines, but there is Shinto, I suppose. But they're not it's not a country that prescribes to like a monotheistic religion. And there we are. There's the stained glass windows and Jesus and 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 highly emotive Italian opera music, which is all coming from that Roman Catholic background, isn't it, of of of. Praise yeah. God and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And it's similar. So we, when we watched The Insect Woman a few weeks ago or months ago, depending on if you ever listened to that episode, now that, that, that was in one of, the, one of its things was the westernization of Japan. And this film is very much that, isn't it? It's, it's that time where yeah. Japan is it's, it's recovered from its post-war crimes, let's put it that way, even though the Japanese probably wouldn't, and is entering into Western society and Western society in in a way it never has before. It's always been an incredibly insular country up to now, and now, you know, the, the car, the way people drive, the way people dress, the music they listen to, the it, it's 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 on the um it's on the edge of a change, isn't it? This film. Yes, and you also notice, right? We have this kind of hulking figure of this Hong Kong gangster who doesn't even speak in the whole film. And that's kind of representative of China, right? China is becoming or at least growing at this time. And it's the great menacing unknown uh, for Japan at this time. And so that's kind of another geopolitical note. Also coming back to your point about the uh, Christian iconography, Shinoda actually talks about the fact that he sees Muraki as a Christ figure. Um, and we can perhaps talk about that more as we get towards the end of the film, but this is kind of a figure who sacrifices himself in what he does for, for the gang. Um, and so that's why he intentionally included uh, those kind of stained glass windows with the cherubs and whatnot in the in that final scene. And then the, the opera piece there is actually English opera. It's actually Purcell. Uh, it's Purcell from Dido and Aeneas, Dido's Lament. Um, and um, I think the words are, the, the music is also, you know, very compelling. It's a, you know, in the opera, it's basically Aeneas leaves his lover, Dido, and Dido dies. And this is her last aria. And, you know, the words in this aria, right, remember me, but forget my fate, I think, are very relevant to this relationship in the film. Absolutely. I would say there are many Italians who would deny the existence of opera, which isn't Italian. But <laughs> yes, you're, you're, you're there as well. If you remember in the bowling alley scene, there is. Oh, yeah. They, oh, God, as, yeah. as we would know. For one cornetto <laughs> yeah exactly it was famously used in a nice cream and british people absolutely only know this as there's there's, there's two operas people will know or two two yeah. arias people will know there's that because of the cornetto which is uh like a like a it's uh, an ice cream yeah it's an ice cream but it's not really ice cream is it it's that well non-dairy ice cream pig fat dressed up as ice cream um and uh, or, or um, Ness and Dorma because it was related to the World Cup in 1990 wow. and yep. completely tied to it. I think they're the only two pieces of, of operatic music that anyone in England knows for you, sure. Um, it's funny you mentioned obviously the Cornetto because my parents um, 
they went to Venice and of course they're doing the traditional English thing of oh let's just like <laughs> use our sort of like weird interpretation of what Italian culture is so they're there singing the Cornetto song and the gondolier guy was like what the hell is this Cornetto thing that all you English people sing about because <laughs> they don't get Cornetto in Italy no it's it's a completely British invention but I'm we had sure been sold it it was like this Italian ice cream but the Italians have no clue what a Cornetto is so yes, we were there singing it to them and they had no clue so very just for Rashmi's benefit very famous television advert for this ice cream by a British ice cream maker called a Cornetto which obviously is meant to sound Italian the advert has gondolier in the on the on the on the I'm going to say the streets of Venice clearly the the, <laughs> the, the, the I've been to Venice and it's a horrible place <laughs> it stinks and it's horrible but yes it's it's meant to be very romantic, and and the and the gondolier is singing just one cornetto, and, and 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 it's just stuck with us as a just one of those adverts. Yeah, it was, there was a whole series of them. It was it was basically anything remotely Italian that they could put this sort of bit of uh, opera into. They would just really hang it onto. So you see them like people performing opera, and they're like serenading an ice cream and stuff. And yeah, because we're the sort of country that really sort of embraces our habits. We still think that with uh, Fro Rocher, the most impressive way at any dinner party is to stack them in a pyramid, the most stupid way to stack any circular snack. Yeah, again, Rashmi's not going to know what we're talking <laughs> about, but we have a very strange relationship with our European friends. Yeah. I won't even start with America's relationships around the world. Go no, on. true, true, but but <laughs> yes. But yes, that did that, that scene at the bowling alley did make me laugh because I knew that me and Elwood would, would both think of Cornetto ice cream it's, while it was happening. It's also one of the two action beats that we get in this movie. I mean, this is a movie with, with just two action beats in it, and yet it's still the most strangely engrossing movie. We're watching people essentially play, um, to just sort of put it under one generic term here, frequency this movie is to people putting like showing tiles and declaring tiles and throwing money about and that that's what most of the movie is it's kind of like uh that um that mantra that we hear in audition isn't it it's very it's... like that when she's going yes yeah it's a, it's fantastic how engrossing those gambling scenes are even if you understand nothing about what's going on and and i, I want to give one just call out here to the composer of the film because i think the music is actually a big part of those music and sound design are a big part of those gambling scenes yeah. and actually when those cards in order to kind of make the sounds that those cards make when they throw them down they had tap dancers come in and do tap dancing and so you'll see the the, the composer toru takemitsu he asked to not only be able to do the score, but also the sound design. And so you'll see there are many places in the film where the sound and the score kind of meld together, that clock shop, right? You have the sound of the clocks, and then it will go into maybe a piece of music. Same thing happening with the, with the gambling scenes. And I, I think the way that that sound design is done uh, in those gambling scenes really, really helps to kind of uh, increase the drama and the tension and, and get you engaged. I have to say, on terms of the score, it did nothing for myself. Um, <laughs> jazz fusion is basically the sound of a blues quartet being pushed down a long flight of stairs. It's. Well, I would, you would be happy to know that the orchestra they hired to play the music hated it. <laughs> I'm glad it sounds like a bunch of people turning up and learning to play the instruments on the job. Well, it's... they did a lot. 
something, which was unusual for a score at the time. If you had an orchestra, you just have the orchestra play it, and you slap it on the movie, and you're done. And in this case, they had the orchestra play it. They hated playing it. And then it went into the same sound lab that Stockhausen, who was this very avant-garde composer at the time, was using to mix all the music and put in all these weird effects and sounds. And so, yes, very, very avant-garde score. And yes, may not be for everyone. But Takemitsu worked with almost every great filmmaker at the time. It was Oshima and Kobayashi and all, all these folks uh, worked with him at one point or another. Yeah, you see, I, I I love the music, but that is because it's just like, well, you know me, I would. It's right up my bloody alley, isn't it? So sort of strange, weird, atonal, uh, jarring music is what I love. Yeah, so. but a lot of the stuff that you like, there's a tune. This is just racket. This is yeah, I I don't know. I I just felt it again. It sort of kind of it just works for me in the context of this film. Would I buy the soundtrack album? and play it no yeah. but i think I, I i liked it in the context of this film i i'm fascinated to hear what you said about the the cards the sort of the foley on the cards was tap dancers because if you go back and listen to it you'll hear it i didn't yeah. know i heard that on a commentary and then i was like oh yeah it totally sounds like tap dancing That's yeah and, and there's this and, and there is a certain yeah there's this i mean gambling movies card game movies are a thing it's a it's a sub sub genre isn't it um have we looked at any before i don't know what because all game movies there's there's a really good korean one that's about some game i can't remember anyway um but i don't understand any of these games right there's the one that they play they seem to take 50 minutes to play guess which tile i've got hidden but it's all really codified about they hide it in three different places on their body at first yeah but, and they wear their jackets over their shoulders to hide it and then they also hide it in, under a handkerchief i have no idea what's going on i have no idea who's winning the game but it was absolutely enthralling mm-hmm. and intense and some of that is because a lot of the sound is um you know it's just the sound of the dealer well not in that particular game but banting basically <laughs> yeah also little quiz for everybody so these are these are called hanafuda cards what famous really famous modern day company started out by making hanafuda cards oh is it nintendo it is nintendo yeah that's what they started off making those cards and then later on invented some toys like the the grabber toy and then and then mario and donkey kong and all that stuff but yeah this is that's that's where they started <laughs> the sound design also comes into its own during the scene where the uh one of the bosses brings his uh, minions a couple of watermelons for them to chow down on while they decide who's going to go <laughs> on the job it sounded like a raptor's tearing into a steak <laughs> the sound of seeds and slurping and stuff it's like god this is it's like having ocd like, just like felt myself really unhinged just listening to people and it's not even a short scene it goes on for about a good five minutes you sit there watching people eat watermelon i was hoping the two of you would remember house when, when we saw the watermelon scene <laughs> good old good old house right with the, the watermelon anyway i don't want to die. But, uh, that, is, that is the second best Asian watermelon thing. Obviously, I haven't got Elwood. Elwood won't go back and watch any Taiwanese cinema with me anymore. Uh, yes. I think I think we all know where I'm coming from. Well, Very 
messages of watermelon. <laughs> yes, indeed. We'll get there. I'll get him there one day. <laughs> we've well, we've already built quite a reputation for penis trauma on the show, so it's not. It's that the wayward cloud isn't that bad. It's it's more it's more it's more implied than. Well, it's not implied. It's shown, but it's not graphically shown. <laughs> Anyway, where were we? Uh, let's see. We talked about sound design. We've talked about the soundtrack, which Stephen liked. I hated. Um, apparently, the orchestra sided with me, so that's good for them. Um, <laughs> well, they were kind of old-fashioned, though, Elwood. You got to keep that in mind. <laughs> it's, you never know what sort of soundtrack you're going to get of this this era, though, because you look at, as I said, when we look at uh, sort of things like Tokyo Drifter and Branded to Kill, it's got a very sort of almost pop soundtrack to it. We've got other films which are sort of more like the lounge jazz, which I would have preferred. Uh, but here we obviously have the uh, the jazz fusion, which I'm sure, as I said, it, well, Stephen obviously showed us there was an audience for that one. So An audience of what? An audience of two, me and the director. <laughs> But the cinematography is also excellent, and most of the film was actually filmed in Yokohama because uh, there's no way of getting permits to film in Tokyo, and obviously it's a pretty busy place. So they had a better luck uh, in Yokohama trying to get some of these scenes done. So that's where most of it is filmed. Yeah, and certainly with the the action beats in here, I think it's really great. And even just like the day-to-day like mobster stuff, such as like when... Um... He has that young thug try to attack him in the bowling alley and he shows up later to offer him the severed finger, um, mm. which he keeps really casually around and introduced to um, to Seiko um, when she like questions what it is. And it's all like, oh, it's just a man's finger. And- I mean, that is that is one of the great sort of Yakuza tropes in films, isn't it? About someone cutting off their finger in shame. But what I, what, this film almost plays it for a laugh, doesn't it? Because the guy fails to kill him. So I think, was he a relative of the person that... I think it was a relative or he was a friend of the guy that he killed. And he's sort of like gone rogue to try and earn his bones within his family uh, by carrying out this unsanctioned hit. And because he's obviously failed, um, he has to remove his finger. Now, Mm. in actual um, Yakuza society, it's not actually that common for people to take the finger off because, you know, it inhibits the ability to make money essentially mm. so you often hear stories of like these young thugs who have like doing what they think is the right thing and they're cut like the, the little finger off and then the boss would go absolutely nuts at them because he's sort of like how are you supposed to earn me money now you've got like four fingers and you've also highlighted yourself as a yakuza there's yeah. cartoons in japan where they will digitally add fingers onto four fingers characters like the simpsons because they don't want them to be seen as yakuza yeah it's it's just it's i always felt it's something which really exists more in the films than in real life although you know i'm fully aware that yakuza is a real thing i'm fully aware i think we've talked about it before yakuza have fan magazines and things like that Uh, it's it's a thing (laughs) but they also have a fondness for slot car racing and karaoke uh, (laughs) talking about my favorite computer games again um he's supposed to be a badass and he goes off and plays bloody slot machines all the time that's the kind of joke isn't it with him but what i was saying what i was trying to say was like this guy then become gets under his wing and becomes his sort of protege 
But my favourite bit is when he's preparing, when um, Muraki is preparing for that final, you know, the, the, the final assassination, which he knows is going to end badly for him. And he's putting his affairs in order. He gives this young guy his jacket. Oh, thank you so much. It's a great jacket. Yeah, your fingers in the pocket. <laughs> it's just because even if he is a nihilist, even if he is a misanthrope, he's got this sense of humour. Even even he cracks a smooth. And I love that. That was my favourite sort of character moment in the film. Well, I thought he was going to show the finger to Seneca when he uh, when they engage in a little home gambling. And he produces mm. a box, and it's like, oh, he's going to sh- just show her this guy's finger just randomly. And they, like, produce the toast. It's like, well, where did the finger go? So. The suit, yeah. Also, oh, in, talking of suits, I love the fact that this film's in black and white, okay? I think black and white suits it so much. It, being a noir, needing that contrast, I don't know, even even if it was made in colour, I think, I think, you know, just some films just work better in black and white, right? I really want to know what colour his jacket was, because it's clearly some exciting plaid going on there. <laughs> I really want to know what, you know, because I think I think it is. Now, again, we're used to another trope is we're used to Yakuza's wearing flashy jackets. And that looks flashy even for 1964. <laughs> it was. But I'll never know, I guess, unless there's some colour photographs taken at the time. Yeah, the great wardrobe. It's just fantastic. And it's it's interesting to note, you know, Psycho, sometimes she's in all white, sometimes she's in all black, and it's interesting it kind of turns up in as well, along with, obviously, yeah, the suit over the top. They're great. I always was that the ja- Japan avoids that awful greaser period, and they only really appears in, like, their 80s cinema, when you have, like, all the uh, sort of biker movies coming through. So I, really, <laughs> I love this area because it's all just people in, like, cool suits and slick back hair and stuff it's not uh not a bunch of people in like leather jackets and bad hair no very stylish um anything else that we want to talk about this one i mean i think the climax is interesting so that last scene right in the restaurant very interesting it's a you know just superbly staged and and wonderfully done and i think um you know, so we already talked about that kind of ill-fated love is what's in the in the aria you're hearing. Um, Shinoda talks about him. This is basically Christ's passion that uh, he comes up here. He's sacrificing himself for his gang. And they they show him looking around the restaurant. And as Shinoda puts it, there's no savior to turn to. There's no one there to save him. Uh as you know, Shinoda basically the analogy is Christ on the cross, right? So, so that's his take of it. I actually, to me, it also just the whole situation uh, reminded me of the kind of Buddhist concept of samsara, right? That's what this Muraki character is caught in. He's just caught in the same pattern over and over again, right? He kills somebody, he goes to jail, he comes back out, he kills somebody, he goes back to jail, and he's just stuck in that because he has. Really no other abilities or interests. Uh, presumably he doesn't really have much of an education. Um, it's made, it's the point is made several times in the film that he has no money. He doesn't really have any opportunities. The gang has kind of passed him by a little bit. He's kind of one of the old school guys in a gang that's moved on. And so he's just stuck in this pattern. And if he ever gets out of jail, I think we're all probably guessing this is just going to happen again. Right. Does he, it reminds me of, of the prisoners in Shawshank Redemption, you know, the, the way they actually wouldn't know what to do. I mean, right. obviously, obviously it goes to some extremes, but even Red 
in Shawshank Redemption, Morgan Freeman's character, it's like, yeah, do you know what? I, I'm institutionalized. And I think in a way that's um, Meraki as well, as, as you say, he's he's trapped in a cycle. I mean, you can't I, I assume you can't keep killing people <laughs> so, and get and get out again. I assume there's a limit to this. But he's he, he takes no pleasure being like I said multiple times he's a nihilist he's a he's a he's a misanthrope he takes no pleasure in being in or around people clearly um great quote where he says when i stabbed him i felt more alive than i ever had before so it's not only does he not have any other marketable skills he seems to kind of like it yeah he thinks it's a good way to invest uh impress uh his his lady doesn't he it's like i'm going i'm going to go and kill someone do you want to come watch that's a hot date, guys. It's like, maybe she'll <laughs> like this. <laughs> He's like, well, but but she is a thrill seeker, of course, isn't she? she is. so, so maybe that's not such stupid, such a stupid question. But clearly, she's not as she's horrified by this because we see her face, don't we, as he does it. And whereas her her thrill seeking, her risk taking is always about her. I don't think she has any voyeuristic desire to see things which are crazy she doesn't want to watch you lose a million yen she wants to lose a million yen she wants to be the one have she's, she's the one's always driving right i don't think he ever drives a car no Correct. i can't i can't remember um no, he's always driving and he can't afford a, a car so but that, that, that's yeah. right um she, yeah she, she she's the one who takes heroin he's the only thing he ever does is shout idiot at people quite a lot that's the only time he gets excited about anything is when he's calling people I think that he likes. So that includes Psycho. That includes the fella who he takes under his wing. He calls them idiots because he knows they could all be better. But yeah, he he nothing. And at the end, I just trying to remember now when he does that final kill, he's wearing an all white suit, right? Is that right? It's white. No, no, I don't think it's white. But it's, it's different. It's not his normal suit, is it? He's 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 brighter. I'm sure he's yep. he's he's in a bad suit to the younger guy. Yeah, so this is a different suit. Yeah, so so so, so again, it also shows that this is this is when he's happy, <laughs> even though he's, he's going off this to spend purpose, another couple of weeks in prison. Yeah, this is his yep. his whole purpose. He's, he's he's basically the rat on the wheel. I mean, he goes to prison, he comes out, he gambles, he kills someone, he goes back in. Um, That's right. He has no he has no family outside of his 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 yakuza family um so basically this is what he does um and he does particularly well and even those bosses like you know you just did a stint inside you don't need to do this he volunteers himself for it because he knows he has no other real purpose um i mean what else is he going to do he's going to continue trying to pursue uh psycho and uh or just lose even more money in the gambling den so those are his two real outlets, uh, really. And I couldn't help, every time I'm watching this, I couldn't help but compare it to uh, The Samurai by Melville. Um, yes. Well, yeah, very well. Exactly the same, yeah. Just no furnishing. <laughs> well, that's the <laughs> thing. <laughs> At least he had a bird. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't even have that. Bird. Yeah, agreed. But, um, uh, uh, yeah. It's exactly like that. Yeah. So there's that kind of straight through line, right? Uh, we've got the gangster here. We've got Murky here. 
the samurai, uh, bittersweet life, right? If you go look at bittersweet life, mm-hmm. it's the same thing. Gangster, he does not have any life. He does, his apartment is completely bare. Uh, and he doesn't do anything outside of gangstering. That's I mean, his life. That, yeah, that was exactly the film I was thinking of. That, that you know, we used to, in, in the early days we used to pair films up, didn't we, Elwood? Um, yeah. What else would you watch We'd in still this case? Do we? I mean, we just work yeah. more into the show than make it his own <laughs> yeah. thing. But but yeah, Bittersweet Life. Go and watch episode fifty-four, whatever it was, where we covered that because it's 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 similar but different, but it's thematically so much the same. And basically, the life the life of the um, criminal enforcer is clearly not a happy one not as glamorous as, as imagined right mm, <laughs> indeed. And, and i like that end right where we have kind of he he does the murder and then afterwards you see life just continues on right the bosses are back at the racetrack uh yep. the youngsters are back gambling um everyone's kind of moved on and here he is back in prison and then of course we get the update on psycho and uh, that uh, she died in a uh, jealous episode with the mysterious Yo, who never speaks a word during the whole film. And um, we have this, uh, you know, his, one, some of his final lines, right? Even now, knowing she is dead, I hunger for her. Mm. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Classic doomed noir love story. It is. It, it is. It is absolutely a noir, and no one can say otherwise because because it has that downbeat ending. You know, noir has to end in at the very least disappointment, and this one does that. I've got to say, you know, I it, it was just um, it was serendipity that I happened to just be hovering over buying this one when um, Rashmi mentioned that she'd like to talk about it, which is why we brought it to the show. Um, I'm not aware of this director rashmi um you're you've clearly got some some knowledge um he, he's made a lot of films are there any other of his films you'd suggest that people would um check yeah, out they're all, um they're all very different i'm trying to give me just a second i want to look up some of these titles but um i think the most kind of critically acclaimed is probably he did this kind of um so there's a old japanese kind of theater play about um uh you know this kind of ill-fated love again but it's a very classic classical story uh several directors have made this movie about uh you know people who are not supposed to be together getting together and obviously bad results ensue um and so he's done a version of that that's kind of mimics bunraku theater which is kind of a classical japanese theater uh shinoda's major in college was actually he majored in theater in theater and theatrical studies. So, so that's kind of, um, kind of one of her, his more famous works. And I think the one that probably critics look to the most right now, um, hang on, I'm trying to, uh, look up on IMDb. I don't know if anyone else has it open, uh, can find the name of this. I, I, it's, it's either, uh, it's like a lover's suicide or something like that. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, not it kind double, of, it's not double suicide, is no. it? Yeah, that's... exactly. You know, you know, in the title, what's going to be happening. So, yeah, um, that's one of his more famous works. But it's I've, very formalistic. Yeah. yeah, I have that seen that. Of things. Um, and then I'm trying to remember this crazy ninja assassin movie. I think it's called like Samurai Spy or something like that. I, I apologize. My uh, 
IMDB is not pulling up right now. I can't find this name, but um, but that's kind of a just kind of really the the opposite end, right? Very much an action movie. You have like ninjas, uh, you know, jumping off bridges and all kinds of crazy stuff happening. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, it, it's it really runs the gamut. And then yeah, you have very serious movies like uh, Silence. Obviously, uh, which is kind of, you know, as, as you mentioned, Stephen, about um, about Christianity in Japan and, and, you know, used there. But, yeah, I would say Double Suicide is probably his most critically acclaimed. Um, a Pale Flower is probably his most popular uh, to this day that people really enjoy. Um, and then, I'm tra- uh, uh, yes, Samurai Spy from 1965, uh, I think, is the one with the ninjas, if you want to check that one out. But there are a lot of good ones. He's oh, made a petri- lot of pet- petrified forest is another one I think has I think it came up for awards or something. Yeah, so I've, you've just proved me to be a liar because I have seen Double Suicide. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't realised it was the same director yeah. and the and and I was looking at the Wikipedia page and it doesn't call it Double Suicide. It calls it by its Japanese name, so I hadn't recognised it. But um, yeah, that that but that's a very stylish, stylized movie. Very different, yes. Very different. And like you say, it's normally normally done by puppets. Yes, Boonrock Theater, where, yes, exactly. Yeah. People dressed all in black, and then they manipulate these puppets on stage. Mm. So it's kind of based on that style. So, yeah, it's very stylized, very formalistic type of interpretation of that story. But, yeah, he has act movies. He has very, yeah, very kind of stylized theater movies. He's got everything. Uh so I highly recommend checking it out. Yeah, no, thank you. You've brought yet another person whose films I need to go and investigate. Great, just what I needed. <laughs> but you enjoyed it, Elwood, right? That's the. I that's did. Always, yeah, that's always that's always my um but, my worry when oh, a yes, film maybe a little it. more art housey than is your normal fare. Oh, yeah. um, yes. But actually, you always do like them, so I don't know why I worry. I, it's mainly because um, the. The working relationship we have is whereas you're like the art house and the classy sort of cinema guy and I'm sort of like the video store kid. Um, that's how our tastes tend, generally tend to work with the films that we bring here. But no, uh, with this one, this is five stars for me. I really enjoyed the hell out of this. Um, currently in my top five, first time watches of 2022, it is sitting at number five. Yay! Um, that's fantastic. Right between uh, Hunt for yeah. the Wilder People and Melaconia. Oh wow! So uh, I um, yeah, so some I'm, different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that's a whole other rabbit hole when you try to look whole, at my taste. All, all three of them, I would say, are utterly age. Well, yeah, I know why you've watched Melancholia. You know, we've talked around that yeah, before. Um, Montreal and, and and obviously, uh, Taito Wakiki is a. Uh, is a modern great. Um, he is. No, he, I, I mean, Julia yeah, Rabbit was my film of the year last year. Um, and now I was worried that he would like get film of the year for two years running and it'd be like, <laughs> build him up too much in my head. <laughs> no, he made the best Marvel movie of all time as well. But this one, what I will say is I'd never seen it before and I watched it twice in two days. And Yay! I never, I never do that. Right. Because that, I just, I just want, and it wasn't because I didn't understand it the first time. It's because I felt it was the kind of film where 
there was more to get the second time round. First time and for the story, second time for the craft, if you know what I mean. Long, so you can watch it twice and it won't take that long, which is great. Mm. And it's only 96 minutes long, which is another absolutely <laughs> one of my rules is no film needs to be longer than two hours, which no <laughs> modern filmmaker agrees with me on. <laughs> No, no, no Marvel movie needs to be three hours long. No, no, no film needs to be three uh, hours. Well, what Daz Boot? Uh, they, you can split it up. Have they just done a remake of Daz Boot as they've, well? They've done a, they've got a series of Daz Boot, which is on. Its I mean, there was, season. there was, there was, yeah. Oh my God, because I remember there was the old, the, the film Daz Boot was either turned into a German TV show or was a TV show it, to start. Yeah, with. it was a German TV show. And then it got uh, released in, as a feature film with yep. uh, Wolfgang Peterson giving it seven guns to uh, glory. Does Boot, isn't it? If we were doing the German Cinema Film Club, um, then Does Boot would be like pick number one. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I just I just saw an advert for it. I thought they haven't. They haven't, have they? And, and clearly they have. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's on its third season. I've not actually watched any of it. Of it. Um, so, but yeah, um, it looks interesting, and it's it's that annoying thing where you like catch a trailer for like season three, and something like really interesting is happening, but you think, oh, could I go back and watch two seasons previous to this to get to that point? So, but that's how I discovered the the remake of Battlestar Galactica. I actually caught an advert for something in the middle of season three and thought that looks really interesting, but then had to go back and spend ages getting back to that point. And oh, it's not bad. I had more I had more time then. Um, I haven't got that time now. When you look at who's the who plays the leader, Edward James Ominous? Uh, yeah, yeah, from um, yeah. Miami Vice. How can you like fault having two seasons with that maestro of acting? Um, oh, that, the the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. The first, so, sorry, Rashmi, <laughs> but the yeah, <laughs> the the reboot of that. The first four seasons of that are some yeah. of the. I don't even like science fiction, and I love that show. Yeah, I think it lost it a bit in the last season because as as with all um sort of those american shows that can't believe they've got more than a season i'll show you lost as well and various others they write themselves into extending the show longer than it naturally needs to exist and then they end up tripping over their own mythology blah 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 yep. but but yeah i i and, and actually the season i love about is one everyone hates which is when they're on the new planet and it's a it's a very um, obvious analog for Iraq, but never mind. Back to the Asian Cinema Film Club. <laughs> Indeed. Um, no, this is uh, definitely one that I would recommend hunting down, um, as I think it's it is definitely one that is worth uh, looking at. And it's great that Criterion have done such a nice job in cleaning it up as well. It looks uh, it looks absolutely stunning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. It's got some nice extras although not it's not um it's not as fulsome as some some releases that we've seen but they're they're nice yes Uh, yes could have you know like the commentary is only i think 30 minutes or so and it's mainly about the score uh so you don't have like a full commentary but they're still good they're still good yeah it's a nice book there's a there's an interview with the director Mm -hmm. Um, but it's just it's just really scrubbed up well as you would expect film, you know, black and white film to do so. It, it's made to be 
high deft up and it looks great and they haven't messed around with the audio so it's still mono as it should be and therefore not distracting but yeah really good and i hope there's more i i really i really hope more of um shinoda's films get that treatment and certainly get over here in the uk because it's just a director i just don't see much I, I, i'd forgotten i had double suicide so um only a handful of his movies have made it over here that, that, as far as i can tell more please thank <laughs> you Rashmi. basically i think is what we're saying yep. well done oh it's have... my thank you so much for having me this has been a real pleasure yeah and it's a great film it's one of my favorites it may not um it, it may not come across too well on an audio podcast but we are currently doing the wayne's world we're not worthy um salute oh. to Rashmi here is just fantastic job tonight Rashmi. thank you for coming on and uh hanging out with us have you got anything you want to plug at all i don't know if you've got any projects on the go or you're just uh out we'll there watch more films no 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 other film no other plugging for me um this obviously brings us into tonight's episode thank you as always for listening if you haven't done already please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us leave us a review as it all helps raise the profile of the show you can follow us on facebook and twitter and instagram come say hi to us there and you can check out our full archive episodes at asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com which not only has all our archive for this show but we've got the battle royale chapter by chapter breakdown on there we've got takashi Mike month we've got Anthony Wong month god that's still bending my head um we also have some great writing from David Brooke on there with the film vault we've got the dark salvation cinema there is a host of stuff to go and check out there as well um but Stephen it's my turn to pick next I believe it is because I gave my pick to Rashmi which was a very smart move of mine it was a smart move now wasn't it <laughs> it was um, um... I guess we could also tell people while you're thinking of what film to pick, we could also say that um, by now, uh, an episode of the Lambcast with you, myself, and Lackey, yep. your ex, your other brother in arms, yes. um, is available. Um, you can see how me and Elwood really don't understand the game Jeopardy. We also don't understand what Americans choose to put in their bodies when we were de- hearing the descriptions of tacos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I really, that, Mr. Rehat. What, what are you going on about? Is uh, that will make more sense if you listen to that episode? But I, I had a good laugh doing it, and I think you did as well. And some, um... but uh, yeah, you can go and listen to if you like listen to people play uh, game shows, then definitely go uh, check that out. Uh, okay, on the next episode, we're shooting ahead to 2003 for a dark comedy called Karaoke Terror. The film is about a bunch of karaoke-loving delinquents who rage a bloody war against a group of middle-aged housewives hooked on the same catchy oldies when one of them bumps off one of their members, engaging, leading to uh, hijinks ensue. But this one looks absolutely bonkers, so I thought um, I'd bring it to the show, and there seems to be even a Clockwork Orange homage in there looking at some of the stock photos I've seen of this one. But uh, Karaoke Terror is going to be our... uh, on our next episode so that's directed by tetsuo shinohara i believe so and it's uh, based on the novel by ryu mirakami oh okay all right uh, now of, now we're talking of you know piercing and in the miso soup and audition uh, you know coin locker yeah. babies not the guy who wrote uh wind up bear chronicle and yeah things i think about while running yeah 
Different Murakami. Yeah. <laughs> Different Murakami. Okay. Right. Yeah. No. I well, I found it not on Mubai, but at least I know the. It's one of those ones where it says <laughs> we're not showing this film, but it's actually got a page for it, so I should be able to find that. Cool. So, so uh, yeah, that's what's uh, what's coming up in our next episode. But until then, thank you very much to our special guest Rashmi for joining us. Thank you. Um, and thank you as always, to Stephen. Yeah, I won't resign, but thank you. There we go. <laughs> and we'll obviously have the update in this young boy training when uh, we come back on our next episode. But until then, uh, thank you as always for listening, and we will be back next time talking about karaoke terror. But until then, good night. Hey! 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 昨日の恋は忘れて昨日のあの子は忘れて踊り続けていたい夜の差月が砕け散っても星が燃えて落ちても踊り続けていたい夜の差胸に刺さった This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.